Please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through chapter 2, verse 5. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 981. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Reverend Aldo Mondin will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am, I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness, firmness of your faith in Christ. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. It's good to be with you. Uh, I appreciate that someone read the verses for me because uh, it's quite a lot, and sometimes I get tripped up. And so I appreciate that you uh, that you did that for me. It's probably the hardest part of the whole sermon is getting through that many verses. I know some of you are you started your Bible, you know, in a year plan, and about this time of the year you start to fall behind. And so I thought I'd catch you back up with a whole chapter um, just to get you kind of back on track. You're welcome. It's a good morning to be here. Uh, at the church. Uh, I appreciate uh, being here with you. Jim's uh, introduction uh, was great. I feel like Jim, uh, he was close to reading off my social security number there for a second. He, he knows so much about me. Uh, one interesting little tidbit that he mentioned that I feel like I now have to elaborate on. Uh, yes, I work for RUF, which is Reformed University Fellowship at the University of South Florida, our, where we're trying to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. Um, and as Jim mentioned, RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, used to be called Reformed University Ministries, but we found that when you put a sign up on campus that said R-U-M with an arrow, uh, people showed up a lot, but uh, they, they were sorely disappointed when they, when they arrived. They were expecting something different, um, and then they got uh, something somewhat unexpected at best Chick-fil-A. Uh, and so we had to change the name to... Uh, to not be accused of false advertising, I suppose. Uh, it is uh, good to be with you, as I said, uh, work for RUF. One of the things that, that happens when you work for RUF is uh, it's sort of a long kind of hiring process. And one of the things you have to do uh, when working with RUF is we, uh, we do this thing called RUF assessment. RUF assessment. RUF assessment is basically it's a kind of a week-long uh, job interview, uh, vacation uh, sort of extravaganza. So my wife and I uh, flew out to Dallas for RUF assessment where they're kind of going to assess you for college ministry, what kind of college you might fit well with, what kind of skills you have, what kind of weaknesses you have, where you might fit well and how you might um, best serve with RUF. So we flew out to Dallas and I got to be honest with you, you may this tell you a little bit about me, we're, we're supposed to be honest in church. I was, I was feeling a little confident. Uh, I had been working in college ministry for a couple of years and I, I, I had a little bit of a pep in my step. Uh, I was coming into the, the hotel to check in, and, uh, you know, as my pastor in Jacksonville might have, might have said, I might have been having a little bit of, uh, of young man syndrome was kicking in. Uh, I was feeling confident. I was feeling proud. I felt like I, I was ready to contribute. And so we got, we're checking into the hotel, and as you check in, they hand you a little packet, you know, as they do with sort of the week's activities and festivities and all the things with the schedule. And I'm flipping through, seeing, you know, kind of all the trials and tribulations that we will be put through this week. And uh, as I uh, walked into the room, my, my little swag that I had uh, 
turned into sorrow because I got into the back of the book and I realized that they had the biographies of everybody else that was going to be assessed with us that week. And as I was flipping through these biographies, I realized everybody else seemed to have a way better resume than I did. I mean, everybody else went to a big name undergraduate institution. They had been scholars uh, at the top of their class. They had then gone to the seminary that I wish I had gotten into. They studied under the professor that I wish I had studied with. They had wrote great papers. They had studied great things. And then they got the internship at the big name church under the pastor who you all would know. And they had done all these things. And some of them had been in ministry for years. And they were coming here to be assessed. I mean, they had every type of qualification that you would think that person is going to be successful in college ministry. I mean, they even had great headshots. They had professionally done pictures in there. And I had, my picture looked like a bad Facebook update. I was sitting there, I was thinking, nobody is going to want to give to this. Nobody's going to want to give to this. I've got this terrible picture. I'm probably 15, 20 pounds overweight. These guys look good. They're ready to go. And the question was dawning on me, does God really want to use me? Could God really use me? And Paul, in this letter to the Colossians, is dealing with a church that's asking the exact same question. You see, Colossi, the Colossians, uh, about 300 years before the time of Jesus, man, they had it going on. The economy was booming. The population was exploding. They were militarily significant. They had a Roman garrison there. They were a center of trade and arts and culture. Colossae is in the center of modern-day Turkey, and it was a place of wealth. It was a place where cultures east and west would meet. Colossae was a place, if you wanted to access the riches of the east from the power center of Rome, you had to pass through Colossae. Colossae was a place, if you wanted to hear the best of Greek philosophy mixed with eastern thought, you could go to Colossae. If you wanted to get interesting trade, interesting goods, all sorts of things, that had to pass through Colossae. It was a place that was entirely significant. It was on the map. They had it going on. But then about the time of Christ, by the time Paul wrote this letter, the city was in decline. The economy was in free fall. The population had dispersed. The Roman military garrison had moved on as other cities began to supplant Colossae. Places like Ephesus on the coast became more important trading centers. The arts and the culture, the philosophers, all those people who had come to grow this great city moved on to bigger and better things. They moved on to the next place. And Paul, famous for his journeys, Paul, who was famous for missionary activity, who would go to big cities. This is what Paul was all about, is he would go to the city and preach in the center of the city. He would go to these big cities to try to convert people, to start churches. Paul himself never visited ancient Colossae. It was too small. It was too insignificant. He passed it over for places like Ephesus and places like Corinth. Not long after Paul wrote this letter, an earthquake destroyed the city. And the Romans, famous for their architecture, famous for their building campaigns, I mean, the Romans, their roads and their buildings still stand to this day, looked at it and said, it's not worth it. Let's just resettle the residents. It's not worth rebuilding Colossae. And even to this day, modern archaeologists 
have yet to excavate ancient Colossae. There's no money in it. It's hard to get funding for excavations. It's hard to get money for these types of things. And what what could we get from Colossae that we couldn't get from Ephesus or some other place? And so these Christians who are in this tiny little town that was being overlooked might have been asking themselves, does God really want to use us? Does God really want to use us here? Yes, I know he's got plans for those people over there in Rome. Certainly he's got plans for there. Or perhaps in Jerusalem, he's got great plans. But what about us? Does God really want to use us? And Paul writes this letter because he wants them to know what they need to know and what you and I need to know if we're going to be used by Christ. He tells them three things. He tells them about Christian mystery, Christian maturity, and Christian ministry. Three M's, mystery, maturity, and ministry. First, uh, verse 27, we'll look at Christian mystery. Well, let's look at verse, we'll start in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery, Paul? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We've got to do a little bit of context work here. Paul has just finished one of the great sections in all of the New Testament about Jesus. If you look from uh, the chapter 1 in Colossians all the way up until verse 24, this is one of the great sections in all the New Testament about who Jesus is and what he's done. And Paul says, this Jesus, he's the man. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one in whom and through whom all things were made. Oh, by the way, he's the one who's still sustaining all things. And he's the one in whom everything has its end. Everything has its reason for existence. Is this Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God. He's the preeminent one. He is the one that everything is pointing to. That is who this Jesus is. And then he says, by the way, Here's the mystery. Are you ready for it? That Jesus is in you. He's in you. Interestingly, Paul doesn't say near you. Paul doesn't say beside you. Paul doesn't say close to you. Paul doesn't say with you. No, no, no. Paul says in you. As near as you are to you. That's how close Jesus is to you when you put your trust in him. When you believe in him, he comes to dwell in you by faith in you. That's the mystery of Christianity. That's the thing that Paul says he's made known. The mystery, everything has been pointing to this moment that God was going to come and be with his people. How are we going to get back to the fellowship we had in the garden? We were walking with God in the cool of the day. And Paul says, it's Jesus. He's come. He's lived and he's died. And now he's in you. And now he's closer than ever before. That means when you're falling asleep in church, when you're worried about the future, when you're not sure if you're called, when you're wondering about what's next, Jesus is in you. When you're trying to evangelize your neighbor and you don't know what to say, Jesus is in you. When you're coming to church and you're not even sure where you stand anymore, Jesus is in you. Christ is there with you. And here's what I think happens. You become a Christian. 
you believe in Jesus, and we think, oh, great, God tolerates me. Isn't this wonderful? God tolerates me. We kind of have this image. I think this is how it works, is, yes, yes, you believe in Jesus. That's wonderful. You've got your foot in the door. You're kind of arm's length. God's kind of keeping you at arm's length. And now you've got to really work to get in close. I think it sometimes goes, I'm, this might be a little, a little piffy, but I think it goes like this. We sort of think that Christianity looks like this. Oh, yes, Jesus says to the Father, you know, if I go down there and I die for these people, will you let them into heaven? And God is kind of like, oh, man. <sighs> okay, I guess. If you go down there and die and rise again, and I, I, I'll let them in. It's sort of begrudging. I'm not super happy about it. But if you do that, I, I will begrudgingly. And we sort of think that God keeps us at arm's length. I was meeting with a student earlier this week, and we were just talking, and, and constantly she was just apologizing just for not even things that had happened, she had done wrong, but things that had happened to her and, and just not being perfect. And I finally looked at her and said, do you know you're not a burden to Jesus? Do you, do you know that, that you're not a burden to Jesus? That Jesus doesn't look at you begrudgingly, doesn't keep you at arm's length, that Jesus is not embarrassed by you. He's not looking at you like a to-do list that he doesn't really want to get done, but he knows he has to. No, no, Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, that's who I want to dwell in. That's who I want to be with. Brothers and sisters, some of you are trying so hard. Some of you are trying so hard. Quit. Quit trying to prove that you're worthy of God's love. And just receive it for what it is, a promise that if you believe in him, he comes to dwell in you by faith. And he loves you because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you, not because of anything you've done. Go home today and read again what the Shorter Catechism says about justification. That we're accepted as righteous in his sight. Not because of what we've done. Not because of our spiritual resume. All the good things that we can contribute. Yes, Lord, look at all the things I'm doing. No, no, no. It says all for the sake of Christ and his righteousness, which is given to us freely. Brothers and sisters, that is the promise of God to you. That is what God offers I have a, a five-year-old son, as Jim uh, mentioned, and so my home is full of sermon illustrations. Uh, and my five-year-old son, um, one of his favorite movies is The Lion King. Uh, spoiler alert's coming if you haven't seen The Lion King. I don't know what you've been doing with your life, but, you know, it's about to be ruined for you. Uh, <laughs> 20-year-old movie. Um, and so The Lion King follows uh, Simba, who's the son of Mufasa. Mufasa is the Lion King. Uh, Simba is the Lion Prince, if you will. And um, through combinations of, uh, of circumstances, Simba is always getting into trouble and needing to be rescued by his father. And all sorts of times, there's Simba is always in trouble, and Mufasa has to come to the rescue. And then one time, through a combination of trickery, uh, bad circumstances, and naivete, uh, Simba ends up in trouble again, and Mufasa comes to rescue him. But in the process, Mufasa is killed. And Simba, full of guilt and shame, he runs off, uh, exiles himself uh, far away from the kingdom. And he meets uh, two wily characters, Timon and Pumbaa. And Timon and Pumbaa have a phrase. It's Akuna Matata. And uh, Akuna Matata, you know what this Akuna Matata means. Uh, I know you're Presbyterians, but we can do this. Akuna Matata means 
Good enough. <laughs> Akuna Matata means no worries. And you think, man, isn't this wonderful? Simba, he's going to live in a van down by the river. This is great. He's going to start a blog deconstructing the monarchy. Uh, he's going to become a vegan. Uh, he's going to have no worries, right? He's going to leave the past behind. And isn't this going to be wonderful for Simba? I'm so excited about the, the turn Simba's life has taken. He's left the past behind, and he's going to live out here with Timon and Pumbaa. And then all of a sudden, a wily monkey named Rafiki shows up. And Rafiki says, Simba, your father is alive. Simba says, no way, it's not possible. I saw the body. And Rafiki says, come and I'll show you. And so they run off into a field and there Mufasa is. He comes in the clouds and he's voiced by James Earl Jones. So it's something of a, of a moment. And, and there he is. And he says, Simba, you've forgotten me. And Simba says, no, 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 you don't understand. There's no way I could forget you. You mean everything to me. I've thought about you every single day. There's no way I could forget you. And Mufasa says, Simba, you've forgotten me. He says, no, 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 you don't get it. You're the most important person in my life. I miss you so much. And he says, Simba, you've forgotten me because you've forgotten who you are. My blood is in your veins. You are the rightful king. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. It was all my fault. I'm the one who caused the accident. I'm the one who caused your death. It's all my fault. He says, Simba, it's not about what you've done. It's about who's in you. And if my blood is in your veins, that means you have a place in this kingdom and it's on pride rock. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is in you, You have a place in this kingdom. And it's not about what you've done or what you haven't done. All the things you've accomplished or all the things that you failed at. How big your bank account is or how much credit card debt you have. It's not about any of those things. It's about the one who's in you. And if he's in you, there's a place for you. Brothers and sisters, don't forget Jesus. Don't forget him. He's the one who's in you. He's the one who's qualified you. Our struggle is to believe that. If you're anything like me, uh, I am constantly trying to replace um, Jesus with my spiritual resume. At one point in one of her stories, Flannery O'Connor says, uh, I'm going to butcher this quote, but she says that there was a character and he knew the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Meaning he knew if he just could live well enough, he wouldn't actually need Jesus. And if we're honest, that's something of what we do. We're very good at this. We think, oh yes, that's great. You believe in Jesus. I've got my foot in the door. I'm on the bottom rung of the ladder, but I'm going to climb my way up now. I'm going to really show him that I belong in this kingdom. And Paul is dealing with that in in verse 28. In verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is Christian maturity. And Paul warns us against two things that we like to replace Jesus with. He talks about these in verse um, 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you 
with plausible arguments. Now, again, we've got to do a little context work here. One of the things that would happen is Paul or some other missionary would come and they would plant a church and, and they would, you know, people would believe in Christ, they would start a church and the missionaries would move on. And then behind them would come this group called the Gnostics. The Gnostics, uh, from the Greek word meaning knowledge, you can impress your friends at parties with that information. Uh, the Gnostics would come behind and they would, they would essentially say this, oh, you believe in Jesus, that's wonderful. You're at an entry-level position in God's kingdom. You got your foot in the door. You're at the bottom rung of the ladder. And now, if you'll just do what we say, if you will just follow our rituals, follow our prayers, do everything we tell you to do, you'll have an experience of God. You'll have an existential experience, and you'll really see the deep things of God. See, yeah, yeah, Jesus is good for all those people over there if they just want to be normal. But if you want to be somebody of significance in this kingdom, if you want to be someone of significance for Jesus, you're going to have to do the things that we say and have a special experience of God where he'll tell you the secret things he doesn't tell all those people over there. Isn't that fun? We can have some sort of secret experience. And if we're honest, we do the same thing. Now hear me. God wants to engage you in your emotions. Your emotions are good things that God gave you. You didn't wake up with your emotions one day and God said, oh my God, I had no idea. It would also be interesting if God said, oh my, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> thank you for the five of you that laughed at that. Uh, uh, he didn't wake up and say, I had no idea they had those. God gave you your emotions. Your emotions are good. Those things are, are wonderful. But what can happen is instead of God engaging us in our emotions, we turn to emotionalism. Where if we're really feeling it that week, God must love us. If we've had our quiet time and our devotional time and the scripture really leaped off the page to us, we must really be in good spiritual standing with God. But if we missed our quiet time or we didn't have a good prayer meeting or if scripture is not leafing off the page, maybe God doesn't really love us and maybe we're not as well off as we think we are. I have this conversation at least five times a semester with a student. It goes something like this. Um, Hey, Aldo, man, I've really enjoyed uh, being here, but there's, there's just one thing that's bothering me. See, since I moved to um, this campus, I don't feel it anymore. It's always it. I don't feel it anymore. See, at my old church, I felt it. I'd, I'd go to church, and we'd sing those songs, and I don't feel it anymore. But now I'm here, and I don't feel it. And I'm listening to all the same songs we sung at my last church. I'm praying all the same prayers. I'm reading those same scriptures that meant so much to me, and now I don't feel it. I'm reading my Bible. I'm getting up early to pray. I've never done anything like this before. Doesn't God notice me? And I normally say one of two things. First thing I say is, hey, this is pretty normal, right? If you talk to anyone who's been a Christian for a while, they'll tell you there are seasons where... It just seems like God is right there sitting and teaching you Scripture, and you can feel him in everything. And there are other seasons where you don't quite feel that, where things feel more difficult. And part of growing in our faith is knowing what we believe and resting on what we believe and resting on what Jesus has done despite what we feel. But the other thing I say is, have you thought of switching the pronouns in that sentence around a little bit? And they say, switching the pronouns. What do you mean by switching the pronouns? So, well, do you notice who the subject 
of all those sentences was, I. I have been doing this. I have been doing that. I have been this way. I have been that way. Why isn't God showing up? I don't feel it anymore. Doesn't he recognize all the hard work I'm putting in? I'm doing all the right things to get the secret spiritual experience, to feel it. I've done the formula. I've plugged it in. Where is God? And I said, have you, have you just thought about thinking about it this way? Instead of saying I, what I've done, how about thinking about here's what Jesus has done. Here's what he's done for me. Here's who he is for me. Here's what he means to me. And I know he's with me and he's for me despite what I feel. And that's what Paul wants us to see. In verse 3, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, there's no secret formula here. God is not keeping anything from you. There's no secret knowledge that you need to go get. There's no ecstatic experience that you need to have. No, no, no. God's mystery is Christ. If you know him, you know everything you need to know. If you've experienced a taste of his grace, a tiny bit of it, that's all you need for a lifetime. One commentator says it like this. He says, Paul answers the demand for the richest Christian experience of God that it's permissible for human beings to have when we have begun to grasp the greatness of Christ and then grasp the closeness of the union we have with him. He in us and we in him, we can ask of God no more. We can ask of God no more because that God has given you everything. He's given you himself. There's no new experience that you need to have. But there's a, there's a second thing that Paul warns us about. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. You know, we're good Presbyterian folk here, and so it's always uh, something of a crowd pleaser when you can hit on existential experience in a Presbyterian church. We, uh, we like to say, yes, that's right. We rest on the truths, not on how our emotions make us feel. And Paul says, yes, 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 but there's one other thing that we can use to build up our, our spiritual resume. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We love our theological learning, don't we? I mean, sometimes it happens where you, it can seem like you become a Christian and we bring you into the church and we say, oh, isn't that wonderful? You believe in Jesus. That's great. You got your foot in the door. Now we have a a 10-week systematic theology course we need you to go through. We have, we need you to open up a Goodreads account. We have uh, these 30 books we need you to read. Uh, we're going to send you through a, a year-long small group leader training. Uh, then we have an evangelism seminar. Then the presbytery is putting on a, a training session. Uh, and then we need you to be involved in a small group for this long. And then you need to meet with the pastor. And then he's going to walk you through the Gospel of Mark together. And all that's going to be really great. And then maybe once you get through all of that, you can talk to your neighbor about Jesus. Maybe once you get through all that, you can, you can pray. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I don't want anyone to delude you into thinking that you, can, that you can replace Jesus with theological learning. Hear me, brothers and sisters. I went to a seminary. I enjoyed almost every minute of it. I love books. Tell, you can, if my wife were here, she would be nodding vigorously. Uh, I, I love books. I love reading. I love all of those things. Those things are good when they are used in the service of the kingdom. But don't think for one second that the number of books you read replaces Jesus. Don't think for one second that, the, that you memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism replaces Jesus. Don't think for one second that God loves you anymore because of those things. 
He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And he's in you and he's for you. And if he's in you and if he's for you, he's called you into this kingdom. No matter where you are, no matter where you're at in your journey, a theological education or experience or anything like that, God wants to use you where you are. Yes, pursue God to experience him. He is real. And yes, try to learn more about God that you might rejoice in what he's done for you more and more and more. But brothers and sisters, Christian maturity is this. It's realizing that everything God wants to say to you and everything God wants to do for you, he's done for you in Jesus. That's Christian maturity. That's what it means to be a true Christian. It's not to get the new knowledge or the new experience. No, no, no. Christian maturity is constantly looking back to Jesus constantly looking back to the cross, constantly looking to him more and more and more and realizing that if you have him, you have all you need. That's maturity. That's what Paul wants you to know. He doesn't want you to be led astray by other things that we can use to build up our resume. That's Christian mystery. That's Christian maturity. Finally, most briefly, Christian ministry. Verse 29. Well, let's... uh, We'll read verse 28 again. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Have you ever thought, man, it would be great to hear Paul preach? I would love to hear Paul preach. I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm, you're happy that I'm here this morning, but if the Apostle Paul was showing up, I mean, you know, you'd cancel your lunch plans and you'd say, we might just hang out a little longer just to hear what Paul had to say. And yet, I want to tell you, if you heard Paul preach, he had one point to his sermon. He said, him we proclaim. This is what Paul's ministry was all about. Paul had a one-point sermon. Everywhere he went, he had one point. Him we proclaim. Over and over and over again, I'm going back to Jesus. Over and over again, that's what my ministry is about. Proclaiming Jesus. And he says in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Having this mystery revealed to us, we go into all the world proclaiming Did you know? Did you know what God is offering? This is not self-help. This is not a new existential experience. It's not a new philosophy. No, no, no. This is the promise that the living God wants to come and to dwell in you by faith. This is the proclamation. This is Christian ministry. But did you notice who's the one doing the work? Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, Christ is not only the one who brings you into this kingdom. He's not the only the one who lives in you. He's not only the one who empowers you and grows you into maturity. No, no, no. Christ is also the one who empowers you for ministry. He's the one who sends you out. And so you're sitting here thinking, I have no idea how to talk to my neighbor. Jesus is in you. I think he's got an idea. Jesus is for you. I think he's got an idea. Can I tell you, I studied a lot of philosophy in seminary, uh, studied a lot of apologetics and things like that. And at my last campus, I met someone, I promise this is true, who worshiped Zeus. I promise this is real. Um, They worshiped the Greek gods, um, whole nine yards. Um, Can I tell you, I didn't take an apologetics course in seminary on Zeus. I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of resources I wasn't sitting there thinking, I really know how to engage this worldview. 
I was like most of you when someone asks a difficult question. You go, that's tough. And the only hope that I had in that moment, the only, the only thing that I could cling to in that moment is that it wasn't about how smart Aldo was. It wasn't about how eloquent I could be. It was about who was in me and who was for me. And if he was there, he's at work. And he's doing something through imperfect people because that's the type of God that he is. He's the type of God that uses people like you and me, imperfect, to accomplish his perfect purpose. That's Christian ministry, is being empowered by Jesus to go into all the world and proclaim this promise, the God of the universe wants to dwell in you by faith. That's what your neighbor needs to know. That's what your coworker needs to know. That's what students at USF needs to, need to know, and that's what you need to know. Let's pray. Jesus, these are deep truths, and if we're honest, we struggle to believe them. Everything we do in our lives seems to be on a merit system. And yet you come, and you give us all your merit, and take none of ours. Um, Lord, would you let that truth sink down deep into our hearts? that you love us because you love us, that you are in us and that you're for us. And if you're in us and you're for us, then nothing can stand in our way. Not because of the greatness that we have, not because of the things we bring to the table, but because of the one who's in us. Would that encourage us today? Would that lift us up? Would that empower us for evangelism? Would you begin to stir in our hearts now someone who needs to know this? Would you begin to stir in our hearts now if we don't know it? Would you draw many people to yourself? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.